and welcome back to Pencils Down. On today's episode, I sit down with Emmanuel Pleitez, who is co-founder of East Los Capital, a Los Angeles-based tech-enabled lower middle market private equity fund. Emmanuel started his career in finance as a banker at Goldman Sachs and parlayed that into a career in politics and public policy at the highest levels before diving back into investing. We discuss his journey into private equity, how he differentiates East Los Capital from the competition, and how he sees technology impacting the investing space. So with that, let's get started. Manuel, I am so excited to welcome you to the Pencils Down podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Federico. Absolutely. We've known each other now. I was trying to remember before hopping on this podcast, but it's probably been at least 10 years since we've known each other. Yeah, just about that. And of course, when we met, you were just coming off of the Obama transition team and working in the Treasury Department and thinking about career in politics. Ultimately, you now find yourself at East Los Capital. I'd love for you, just for our listeners, to share a little bit of detail around your career path and progression and how you found yourself launching East Los Capital. I appreciate that. It's been a nice kind of windy road from when we met. I was at the Treasury still when we had met, I believe. And then from there, I, I joined McKinsey and a company, so did management consulting for a couple of years, then joined a tech startup called Spokio as our chief strategist. I did that for a little while. Then I, talking about politics, I ended up running for office for a second time. I, need, I needed a second time for folks to tell me no to then just focus on the business world. <laughs> so the second time I ran for mayor of Los Angeles, which is obviously a, a nice undertaking. I didn't win, but the silver lining is that I ended up backing in a runoff the guy who ended up winning, Eric Garcetti, who is now our current mayor of Los Angeles. And in sort of the backing him and being part of the team, he ended up appointing me as his commissioner, his first commissioner on the Los Angeles fire and police pension system, which put me squarely back into the investing world, more on the allocator side with the pension fund. So that allowed me to then, from an allocator's perspective, look at a ton of funds. We actually, as a pension system, allocated to over 150 different funds. So I was able to see clearly the underlying returns, hear all the different strategies. And aside from the 150 funds that we allocated to, I got pitched every week or so by someone that wanted to get access to an allocation and I just passed it on to our investment team. But I always loved hearing the, at least the initial pitch to have my own view. So anyway, all that led to then kind of understanding even at a more in more depth what the allocators go through. And so from there, I uh, looked to get back into the industry on the investment side. I ended up having a break from the commission because I got activated for some military training. I'm in the Army Reserve and now the National Guard. And so that sort of provided a clean break. And when I was thinking of what I wanted to do next, I ended up talking to a lot of friends in the venture capital and private equity community and ended up landing with a team out of Trident Capital, which was a multi-stage VC firm. And I joined the team that was spinning out to create a more private equity style, growth equity type of investment vehicle. The firm, we ended up calling it Sunstone Partners. And so I was part of the foundation 
founding team there, not one of the partners, but someone that was part of the actual spin out. So I was able to see exactly what it took to build a new firm from scratch, raise a new fund from zero commitments to a $300 million uh, fund with over 20 different LPs of all institutional types from pensions to insurance companies to fund the funds and family offices and kind of you name it, we had kind of every flavor of an allocator in the fund. And then from there, I was there for a little over two years. I ended up getting activated again on the military side. I got deployed in the Middle East, came back about a year later. And after having at least nine months of time to think in the desert in the Middle East, I said, you know what, it's time for me to plant my own flag and create my own investment firm. And that's where Eastlos Capital came in. So I ended up partnering with a guy who used to be my client in the mid-2000s when I started my career at Goldman Sachs. He was a longtime research analyst for over 20 years, mostly at a firm called trust company of the West, TCW. And we joined forces to create a differentiated lower middle market private equity offering for investors. And, and so that's what we're doing here at East Los. That's so interesting. And you mentioned a differentiated strategy. Tell me a little bit about what that means in practice. Sure. So we talk about three specific things. One, research. Two, sourcing. And three, tech-enabled operations. So first, research. What we noticed after not just myself being inside of a private equity firm, but as I talked to a lot of folks in the sort of deal-making world, especially lower middle market, the depth of research usually is not the same compared to, say, a long-only equity investor that's looking to put $2 billion into a public stock, right? Because sometimes you spend more time, quite frankly, negotiating with a family-owned business or just a founder that's ready to kind of sell a stake in their business. And so what we felt is that we needed to be more thesis oriented. And so we're leveraging the background, mostly of my partner, who essentially was a research analyst for over 20 years doing this type of kind of research. And so that's sort of what we want to put forward with our LPs in that we sort of take more thematic approaches to investing where we want to kind of get deep into a particular industry or thesis and then focus our sourcing, which leads me to the kind of second leg to the stool here in terms of being able to find companies that are within that thesis. So sourcing in particular, we take a more tech-enabled approach there, something I did at my prior firm, Sunstone Partners, which was aggregating as much data as, as we can get our hands on creating our own proprietary data set integrating with the CRM, creating a better interface for our internal team and allowing us to essentially at a more rapid pace, identify the opportunities we care about instead of the opportunities that bankers bring to us only. Doesn't mean we don't want to look at deals from bankers, but we want to make sure that we're creating our own proprietary deal flow as well. And the more data, the better, the more deals we're seeing proprietary or from bankers, the more we're going to better understand what's happening in the market today. So that's the tech-enabled sourcing. And third, tech operations. We have 30 technical advisors and a number of informal advisors that all sort of have played in and around technology. It doesn't mean that our investments are only technology, but whenever we look at a company, we look at all the ways that we can tech-enable that company. And so two-thirds of our technical advisors are engineers or product managers, so they've actually built best-in-class tech. Uh, we have alumni of Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Intel, IBM, you name it. We have probably an alumni from there if it's one of the big tech companies. And then aside from that, the majority of them have been founders of, of technology companies, so they know what it's like to build something from scratch. And so that's sort of the DNA of the people that are on our team. So when we look at a company, they help us with the due diligence, and eventually they can join the company as an operator or an advisor or whatever kind of role that we believe is going to add the most value to that portfolio company. So those are kind of our three kind of legs to us too, and what we believe is differentiated versus other folks in the market. As you talk to companies and you consider growth equity investing with those businesses, do you find that those businesses, or at least the C-suite with whom you're interacting, 
is receptive to a conversation around value add not simply being driven by price, but also being driven by the expertise that you can leverage and bring to the table? Absolutely. I mean, essentially nowadays, so back to sort of talking to LPs, we tell LPs that whether you like us or not, whoever you allocate to better be doing or at least trying to do what we're doing. Because nowadays with sort of all this sort of capital chasing smaller deals, because most people are getting hip to what growth equity is, sort of a more growth style type of private equity investing, then there's more competition, right? So when you're a founder and you get to some modicum of success, call it 10, 15, 20 million of revenue, you start getting contacted by private equity firms. And so you need to make a decision. Do I take the random private equity firm just because they offer $35 million valuation? Or do I take the one that offers me 33, but they have this team that on day one are going to be supporting me and making sure that I am best prepared for the next phase of growth. And that's sort of the calculus that most of these founders are making. So they are receptive. I think they're eventually going to start asking even more in-depth questions like who's actually paying for this advice and how is it being implemented and what is a technical roadmap if there is such a roadmap. So, so those are the things that I think are going to be the next phase of differentiating so that you can't just say, oh, we have a great ops team. You actually have to get into the details of what that means. And we try to front end that by making sure that our team is part of the due diligence process. So it's not just the sort of deal team of an associate, a VP and a partner, but it's an associate VP and a partner plus two or three technical advisors. So when we're actually talking to the company, we're already saying, hey, we're starting to roll up our sleeves and trying to figure out what the future of this company looks like instead of just saying, hey, we're going to pay this price and negotiating you on price. That's totally fair. And I guess kind of a corollary to that is one of the questions that I'm sure you get a lot is, hey, Emmanuel, I like you. I like Islos' story. But you're very new, right? And Eastlos itself doesn't necessarily have a well-established track record as Eastlos. How do you overcome that type of questioning? No, it's a great, great question because it definitely matters, right? And I think we're lucky, and I hate to paint too much of a rosy picture because I don't have a billion dollar fund yet, right? <laughs> we still are an emerging manager, but I would say that this is where I think versus other folks that maybe are at our stage, my background as an LP helps because we're not just painting a story, but we're putting our advisors as part of the conversation. We're talking about past investments in a more detailed way than most other people that maybe just don't have as much in their history of investing. And so here we leverage the fact that my partner has actually invested out of big institutional funds, mostly on the public equity side, but to a founder versus an LP, the founder cares more that you know how to invest or you've seen a lot of deals or, because they want to know where you're going to take them versus an LP just wants to know that you've done a deal just like the one that you want to do, right? It's a little bit of like, I only want you to do the same thing you've done before. While the founder says, I want you to show me the promised land, right? I know where I'm at today. I want you to show me the promised land. So then when we talk about my partner, Anthony's background as being a billion dollar investor in Amazon or Google or some of the bigger internet names out there, it's a much easier story to tell. And then from my end, I talk about some of the deals that I worked on while I was at Sunstone Partners. I was part of the first few deals that we did there. And one of them in particular just sold to Rackspace, a company called Onica. And I think that that sort of success allows us to essentially paint a pretty good picture where, look, we've been part of investment decisions where over billions of dollars have been deployed. And in particular, we have some recent success where there's been an exit. And I think for founders, that's sort of enough for them to be like, okay, you're legit, you're legitimate. 
now then it's how do you take me there? And then that's where I think we excel because we actually can call on people from those companies to essentially bring them in as part of the due diligence or at least show the founder that we have access to those types of companies. But it's a great question because again, I hate to paint too much of a rosy picture. We're still in the process of doing this, but we end up getting pretty good feedback. In fact, today we got off the call with the banker who basically said, hey, look, you're a little lower on the bid than, than, than we want you to, which is sort of typical for the banker to say, right? Because they always want the higher bid. <laughs> they also are kind of sugarcoat that with saying the founding team really likes you, right? Even if we don't have the committed capital today for that particular deal, they sort of want us in the process, right? So we get a lot of that feedback and we're in enough conversations where we're straightforward with people and saying, look, we're emerging where this is our first time doing this together as a fund, but here's all our background, right? You either trust it or not. And here are references that you can check on us so you can make sure that you know who you're getting into business with. So interesting. And then just in terms of scoping out potential companies that you might explore a possible investment in. Are there any particular verticals that you're focused on this year? Sure. So we are looking heavily into cloud services, and that's a little bit based on my more near-term background with the company I just mentioned. We believe there's still so much room for growth there, and that's specifically following the ecosystems being built by AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure. So those are the ecosystems we're following, and we're trying to follow basically any software that's being built on top of those cloud ecosystems. At the same time, we're not afraid to go down the services end, again, because we don't need to only be a tech investor. We're looking at consulting businesses. We're looking at, we're even looking at resellers that is effectively a marketing organization for cloud, but that's a big space we're looking at. We're currently bidding on a company in the sort of retail to e-commerce trend, which is for most people, they would say, well, that's everyone's known about that one for a while. But then you look at Shopify stock price and you say, oh, wow, aside from Zoom, the, the sort of second highest valuation on a revenue multiple out there is Shopify in the public market. So there's still a lot of room that investors are seeing for growth there. And so we're looking at businesses that are facilitating that, whether consultants or other type of players that are tech enabling those types of businesses. We like those two spaces. Cybersecurity is a big one as well. In fact, because of my military background and being part of the intelligence community, I have a view specifically on the offensive cyber side, which a lot of folks that just do cybersecurity, they don't even ever play any offensive cyber. So we're sort of getting really deep on those worlds. And then broadly, just any business that essentially has human capital that could be tech enabled, meaning that the human being could be more productive with technology. That's a little bit more of our squarely in our thesis. So services business broadly, we're trying to stay away from capital asset intensive businesses. One, because we don't have as much history investing in that. So oil and gas, big industrial companies, we're not touching those, but pretty much most other things are fair game for us. Fair enough. Uh, and I guess one question I had for you is how Eastlos leverages technology. I mean, obviously, one of the things that you mentioned was a big focus for the firm in tech-enabled operations. But I guess if I were to turn that around a bit, I'd also be curious in learning a little bit more about how Eastlos manages technology internally as a firm. I mean, this is a firm, I guess you and I are both considered older millennials, uh, you know, kind of on the, we're the uh, first first group of millennials. The, the very first group of millennials. Facebook came out when we were in college. We live our entire lives in the cloud. In our conversations over the years, I know that you've mentioned really a strong sense of we need to tech enable as much uh, of what we do as possible as an emerging fund. Tell me a little bit about how you leverage technology internally as a fund. 
So the quick anecdote there is that at my last firm and they'll attest that I probably had like for every 10 ideas of tech enablement, I thought that we should be doing at the firm. They adopted about four of them. So they were probably in front of the curve versus other private equity. They're way ahead of the curve. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But so at this firm, ESOS Capital, I want to adopt the other six, right? So I want to adopt everything. And in fact, when we talk to LPs, we say, look, we need to be one of the most, if not the most tech enabled firms over time, especially as we have a budget with a larger fund. But that specifically going back to the three pillars, research. Right, research needs to be tech enabled. How do we aggregate more data? How do we understand what's happening in the public markets and have a view in the private markets on a almost day-to-day basis? Right. We think too many private market investors do not follow the public markets. My partner and I, that's where we met. He was my customer at TCW while I was at Goldman Sachs, and all we were doing was looking at public market stuff. And too many times private equity investors are a little bit behind the curve on sort of what's really the dynamics and kind of on a day-to-day basis, what's happening. How do you find what's happening in the debt capital market? Like how are particular industries being valued by the public market? So some of these trends that we think that we can be a little bit more on top of, and that could be improved tremendously by research, mostly data, but then data that can be in a more easy to use format so that we can allow our research to make better investment decisions. And on the source, I talked a little bit about that, right? Also aggregating data, integrated with CRM, creating a better user interface. And my last firm, I built essentially one point version 1.0 of that. And we're looking to build, you know, version 2.0 of that. So there's a bunch of data vendors out there from the pitch books out, the Mattermarks, Capital IQs and Factsets. And so we need to ensure that we're getting the right feeds, the feeds that we prefer, and then doing our own analysis updating the data with data that isn't easily acquired through data vendors. So there's a lot of data that essentially you need to find offline or there's no API to be able to tap into it or you can't scrape it to through web crawlers. So there's data that you can get on your own. You input it into your data set. All of a sudden you have a richer proprietary data set. And then the speed of you being able to analyze that. So running analytics on it and then being able to actually say, okay, we used to have a thousand companies that we thought we liked, but here are the top 20 that fit exactly the type of company we want. They feel that that they're at the right stage. And if you dump some network analytics behind it, all of a sudden we're like, oh, we can get intro to all 20 of them because we have a friend who knows the CEO. There is something like that. And that's where the kind of tech enabled sort of sourcing process actually really starts working. So anyway, those are a few tidbits, but I could go on and on. I think about this all the time and I want to continue thinking about that. And lastly, with our advisors, because tech enablement on one end, you can either just like search for subscription software and subscribe to it. But with our technical advisors, we've actually managed engineers in over 15 countries. So we have a sense of engineers from Eastern Europe, Russia, India, even China, and also throughout LATAM countries. So we sort of have a sense of like where engineers are, what they're doing, what their cost is, who's better at design, who's better at backend stuff. And so those are the kind of insights that we're going to benefit from as a firm. But then when we look at portfolio companies, we're actually going to be able to deploy, right? Do you subscribe to software? Do you build it? Do you insource? Do you outsource? And those are all questions that every CEO needs to understand how to answer. And most, if you're not an engineer or live and breathe sort of the Silicon Valley way, you're usually a little slower in making those decisions. Just to quickly switch gears, Emmanuel, we're obviously in a pretty challenging macroeconomic context right now. What do you think the opportunities are emerging fund managers such as yourself? It's a great question. So my gut reaction is stay the course. Stay the course. If you believe in your strategy, your thesis, then you should have already accounted for tough economic environments. And 
if you didn't account for tough economic environments, then maybe this is the opportune time for you to pressure test your thesis. And I think that there's sort of my gut is just stay the course, because if you're good and you believe in what you're doing, just do it. If the capital providers maybe don't respond to you right away, it doesn't mean they're not going to respond to you later on. And so have conviction. And quite frankly, in the conversations we have had in the last three months with some of the more respected capital allocators and providers for deals today, they lack conviction. They don't have conviction. So whatever's happening in the public markets and the Federal Reserve kind of saving everyone on a security by security basis, right? On an individual investment basis, folks lack conviction. They don't understand where pricing is. They don't understand how they should bid. And so if you're an emerging manager and you have the conviction, it's a breath of fresh air when you talk to an actual capital allocator or capital provider for your particular deal. And so that's why that my gut was saying, stay the course again. But if you were investing in only leisure and hospitality, now you have a sort of a pressure, a test that came to your industry sooner than you would have imagined. And now you need to understand, do I still like this space? How do I like this space? How do I want to play the space? Because companies are still going to be there. It's just going to be a, maybe a different margin profile, right? Or maybe uh, tech enablement was accelerated in a particular industry that you were looking at before. So hopefully that informs your thesis and you're able to adapt and come back to your capital providers and say, hey, this is what we thought. This is how it's been impacted based on COVID-19 and this is our path forward. And as long as you have that conviction and sometimes humility and understanding that your thesis was impacted, most folks are going to resonate with that type of message. Very sage advice, Emmanuel. And uh, if we were to extend that, one, one question that I'd like to end with is if there's any advice that you'd like to share with those considering launching their own private equity fund. I would say no better time than now, <laughs> but why, right? Why, why would I say that? I think that I like seeing headlines where people say out of crisis, this company and this company got created, right? right? But then when not in crisis, then you have tenfold the companies <laughs> that got created. So it doesn't always work that way. And it's nicer when folks are returning your call because they have ample capital and they're ready to deploy it. It's much easier to do that. But I guess why I say no better time than now is because one of my kind of mentors along the way said that staying power is what matters. And the folks that essentially don't give up, and especially when they're faced with adversity, they're resilient, they figure out other ways to get by. It may be a long and windy path, but those are the folks that win. And so if you're going to launch a fund, it's going to take a while regardless, even in an up market. Even if you're not a neat spin out that's spinning out of a top 10 fund and you and your two other partners were doing deals for the last 10 years together, you're going to have a hard time because everyone's going to ask you, what's your track record? What do you bring to the table that's different? And if you don't have all those answers pinned down, it's going to take a while. I mean, the average fundraising process, I think that there's always numbers out there that say two years, three years. You never really know because there's a little bit of selection bias there. But for everyone, no matter how pretty your story is, it takes a while. And so when I say no better time than now is with the understanding that it's going to take a while. So why not let that while start with some of the toughest times where folks are kind of looking internally and maybe not ready to deploy. But if you have conviction in your story and you continue telling it, when things turn around, all of a sudden you're like, remember we talked a year ago, two years ago, they're going to be much more likely to want to allocate to you or get to know you at that point. Are there any books that you'd recommend to folks considering launching their own fund? 
<laughs> I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here because it's a book that I just loved. It was one of the first books I read when I joined Goldman Sachs. And it's not really relevant to necessarily an emerging fund manager, but it's all about the fact that markets go up and down and you cannot control them. So it's a, like a 1920s book, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. I'm almost butchering probably the name exactly because I read this a while back, but Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Yeah, I did say it right. Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. So it's essentially the tale of a trade at essentially a bucket shop that's just trading stocks, day trading. And you're starting to hear more and more day traders nowadays because sports gambling is not happening. But why that book came to my mind when you asked the question is that things go up, things go down, right? You need to stay the course. And it's a little bit back connected to the last answer. In investing, you need to have these sort of nerves of steel. You need to have a thesis, a, a rationale for why you're doing things. And you can't get swayed by what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. You need to understand what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And when I look at my career, I think today versus a few years ago versus especially 10 years ago, I am way better at understanding when I see a headline, I see news, I see the chairman of the Federal Reserve say something, I'm able to at a faster clip interpret it and make it relevant to what I care about. And that happens with experience. At the same time, you also need to know that just because someone said something or because you see a headline, it doesn't mean that at that point you need to change the way you're thinking. It's just a, another little input. And so that book, I think, is a great kind of story and personifies the ups and downs of the stock market, which as an investor, you need to understand that there's just always ups and downs and you might get hit and it's the people that know how to get up that are going to be the most successful. I am ordering that book on Amazon tonight. I'm so <laughs> curious to check it out. And, it's a uh, fun book. It's a fun, it's a fun starter for anyone that cares about investing or wants to be a serious investor. I have no doubt. And you know, with that, Emmanuel, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us on the Pencils Down podcast. I'm really looking forward to tracking Eastless's successes this year and look forward to having you back on soon. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to share and hopefully we're both on on the upward trajectory here to make an impact in this market. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Special thanks to Emmanuel Pleitez and East Los Capital. You can rate and review Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts. Got a question for us? Send us an email at pencilsdown at finalis.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. <laughs>